Hey Dunkerpunks, James Foster here, bringing you this special bonus episode of the Dunkerpunks podcast. I'm glad that you're here today tuning in, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to host the show, because it is my pleasure to introduce these two prophetic voices that you'll hear in today's episode. We welcome back Annalisa Gross, who was a guest here on the podcast not so long ago, and who returns to take her seat in the interviewer's chair. She is joined by Anna Wolfenden to talk about Anna's new book and what it means to welcome others and to be welcome at God's table. Let's hear Annalisa set it up. One of the best things about attending Bethany Theological Seminary is meeting other Church of the Brethren folks from around the country, from even around the world. And one of the other best things about attending Bethany Theological Seminary is getting to know people from all sorts of denominations both students at Bethany and students from Earlham School of Religion. These two seminaries are abundantly integrated. When I was a student at Bethany, I got to know Anna Wuffenden, a student at Earlham School of Religion. She's from the Swedenborgian tradition, which is often less well-known than the Church of the Brethren, even. I really appreciated Anna's wisdom, her laughter, her warmth, and her deep rootedness in her faith. You will hear all about her rootedness and her wisdom, and you will experience her humor and her warmth when you read her book that came out earlier this year. This is God's Table, Finding Church Beyond the Walls, published by Harold Press. I had a conversation with Anna about the book and much more. Thank you, Anna, for joining us today, for being part of the Dunker Punks podcast. We have always appreciated having you alongside of us, Church of the Brethren people, and now we get to have you in our Church of the Brethren podcast. So it's great to hear from you today. And we would love to hear your voice in your own words, introducing us to your fantastic book, This is God's Table. So will you read from us from This is God's Table? Absolutely. So this is from chapter five, God is here. In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. And God came and dwelt among us. God came and pitched her tent among us. God came and set up his tabernacle among us. We spoke these words each week as we began our worship service together on Sunday afternoons at four o'clock. Making and being church, however, started about an hour earlier when we'd pull out the hoses for watering and circle around the whiteboard to figure out what the garden work was for the day. Our weekly Sunday gatherings included three movements, working together, worshiping together, and eating together. We were striving to create a permeable space. Come for what you're interested in, stay as long as you want. If you were not into gardening, you would not be forced to pull weeds or turn the compost. You could do some art at the picnic table or join in practicing music for worship or just sit and enjoy the sun. If staying for worship sounded unappealing, you were free to keep weeding at the edges and listen from a distance. We would even bring communion to you if that were more comfortable. If you were hungry and just wanted the meal, you did not have to listen to a sermon before you ate. Everyone was welcome to everything, but also to come and go as they felt led. God was in it all. I felt it my call as a pastor to continue pointing to and proclaiming this gospel, the good news. God is everywhere and moving in all things. 
and God is right here with us. As I spoke the invocation each week, we framed our time together with those words from the Gospel of John. I would look out over the fluctuating group of people circled around on benches, blankets, and camping chairs and say those well-worn words, sometimes feeling that God was with us and other times willing it to be true. I won't give away all of the good news gospel story of your book because I want people to just read it themselves. But one of the things that is most exciting and um, nourishing to me about the Garden Church is that you are worshiping and ministering with both people who are hungry and people who are well-fed. Something that I struggle with when I read the gospels and think about how to share them with people is that we who are usually well-fed tend to turn Jesus' teachings about hunger into some spiritual allegory. And I wonder if those of us who tend to have full stomachs can even understand the good news of the gospel unless we really can be led or opened into our deepest vulnerability and our brokenness. I would love to hear you reflect, Anna, on ministering both with people who are full and with people who are hungry, literally and spiritually. Well, the the tagline and the motto and the part of the DNA of the Garden Church was this line, feed and be fed. And that really um, embodied the idea of the reciprocity of of the work of the gospel, of being church, of being human. And that, so whenever somebody would walk into the space, into our, our outdoor sanctuary and urban farm, it was my job and the job of anyone who is, you know, had joined and was part of the community to really ask the question, both what are people hungry for? And also what do they have to offer? And we thought about that in terms of like feeding in body and feeding in mind and feeding in spirit. And the thing that was true is that, yes, there was the, the dichotomy that you put out of like some people were well-fed and some people were not like physically. But if you throw in mind and spirit and you throw in just our general like ups and downs of being human, everyone had something to offer and everyone had something they were hungry for. And I think that part of the... Um, the work of the garden church. And I think the work of the gospel is yes, to find out what are the needs and how do we fill them? And what are, what are the, those needs? And sometimes those are spiritual. I mean, think about people who in the congregation who had plenty of financial resources, had homes, had kitchens, could buy groceries, could get, you know, takeout delivered, but they were really lonely really, really lonely and had been eating by themselves for so, so long. And they were hungry for community and they were hungry to be with other people. And, um, and then certainly think about the, you know, some of our um, neighbors who were living on the streets and living in parks and they were physically hungry. Um, But many of them, they knew how to do community, right? And they knew how to care for one another and, um, and that was something that, that those of us who were, you know, had kitchens and were fed could learn from and that everyone had something to contribute. Another thing I really loved about the community meal is, um, it, it was not the fed people weren't sitting behind the table serving the, the, the physically fed, pe- you know, people, um, serving those who were physically hungry. Um, we would do a buffet style. Of course, this is all changed in COVID and it's, 
sad and all I mean, they're, they're, they're still making sure that people who are hungry are getting food, but this, the communal part is really, there's a real, there's a real missing of that. Um, but everyone would sit down together and we would all eat. Um, but also we would point to the different ways that people had contributed to the meal. And so, yes, you know, Linda made the pasta dish and somebody else, you know, made the salad, but, oh, wait, the salad was picked by people who are here, who were here during work together time. And, oh, the pasta dish has tomatoes that so-and-so planted. And so whether you had resources or not, whether you had a kitchen or not, whether you could buy the pasta or not, not only were we eating together, we also had had contributed to the growing and preparing of the food. Um, so I think that that to me is, is one of the takeaways is that I think that we can, when, when, when us nice church people, (laughs) um, with, you know, with some resources, whether we have many or not with some resources, start to think about service. Of course, that's a good thing. Of course we, we want to, you know, pay attention to the needs in our communities. Um, but I think that we need to be on guard about thinking about that we are the ones that have things and other people are the things people that don't have things and instead look and see more deeply. Um, how are we, how can we be in reciprocity with one another? And, um, and certainly how can we, you know, how can we share resources? And if there's those of us who have resources, how do we distribute those differently? Um, but I think that that, that feed and be fed is, continues to be a guiding a guiding light for me that way. So speaking of the communal meal, which in some cases is truly a potluck, um, I think about how potlucks are not just a symbol, but a ritual of being community, of feeding and being fed. And we are all living in diverse bodies that have needs and aversions. I wish we could be nourished by everything that's put on the table at a potluck because that would feel like we were embracing everyone's gifts and participation. And at the same time, it's true that some of our bodies will be depleted or uncomfortable by eating specific foods. And that's true with people too, with people's personalities and behaviors, which can deplete us and make us uncomfortable. Anna, how do you care for your body, your soul, your energy, as you share in the holy potluck feast? I think one of the things that continues to be a learning curve for me, and I think for church, is when we say all are welcome, what do we mean by that? Um, And I think all are welcome is a very heartfelt and easy thing to say, and it's something that many of us want. But what it means, I think, has unending layers of complexity. Um, And one of the places that we saw that at the garden church is the community meal. And it's a place that I see in many churches um, that there are little, little layers. (laughs) Um, So for me, I have a pretty severe gluten allergy and that means that I have to pay attention to what I put in my body. Um, And that is hard enough at restaurants with good labeling, but when you come to community meals, church potlucks, um, and even communion, it, it becomes complicated. And so it's been a good, um, 
teacher to me, for me, in terms of recognizing that what is nurturing to one person is not necessarily nurturing to another, and that I have the responsibility to my own well-being to ask the questions, even when I when it feels annoying or I feel like I'm being high maintenance or I feel like, you know, I have to, have to dig deeper, um, but to be willing to say, Oh, so what's in that? And, and recognizing that not everyone has these kind of awarenesses of, of um, how different bodies react to different foods. So one of the things that we did at the garden church to try to, I mean, I was sensitive to it, to this and I, it's something that I, I think is, um, can be a gift to people is to be as clear as possible about things. And so we would have, um, before our community meal, we would, um, say, you know, who brought what today? And we would ask people to say, and even label, you know, this is gluten-free, this is dairy-free, this is not free, this, you know, that, and that we would always have, some variety that there was, there was variety. We were, we were not necessarily all eating the same thing. Um, our communion bread, we, um, made with a recipe that was, um, gluten-free and, um, and dairy-free later on. We, when that was a need and that was important too. And we would always announce it right before. Cause when I go into a church for the first time, the first thing I try to figure out is whether I'll be able to take communion or not. And if a church has it in their bulletin, and I know the brethren don't have communion on a regular basis, so that doesn't have quite the same implications. Um, but I think it's true for potlucks too. You know, it's true for, is that if the information is there, it is such a relief because then you can know, oh, I can, I can be here and I can know what is, what's what. Um, but I think that this question, so for me, it's about a food allergy um, for other people, it's about knowing, you know, will I be actually welcomed if I'm queer for other people? It will be, am I welcomed if I'm black? Um, there's, it'll be, you know, I have a hearing, um, deficit. Will that be accommodated? And, um, or I'm in a wheelchair or, I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. And I think that we are naive to think that any church is actually all the way welcoming. I have yet, I mean, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, I'd like to think that we all can strive to that and keep learning, but I don't think it's actually possible. I mean, I think we should work for it, but I think that there, there's always, we can't always, we can't be everything to everyone. That's not actually a reality. So rather than pretending that we are, how about we actually like examine and look and ask people questions. And it goes back to that reciprocity piece too, of saying like, okay, like, what do you need? And also like, what do you have to offer? So one of the things I had to offer our community was working on gluten-free communion bread recipes until we found something that worked. It opens up an opportunity for a deeper conversation, which is, goes beyond, well, I need this to, oh, I need this and you need that and you need that. And how do we make our needs known and respond to one another's needs and um, not pretend that we all have the same needs. There's variety in the kingdom of heaven.
as you said, brethren don't share communion on a weekly basis. We don't even share the same words of liturgy on a weekly basis, not the way the Garden Church does or many other churches do. And when I served a UCC congregation that cherished weekly communion, I would proclaim this adapted version of a Lutheran communion liturgy, and we would sing together, Christ is the host, Christ sets the table, and Christ welcomes all. And your book title, This is God's Table, your work with the Garden Church, make that same claim. This is not our table to invite others to. This is God's table. It's Christ's table. All are welcome. And I hear both within the church and outside of the church in the work of equity and justice People are saying, who's at the table? Who's missing from the table? What keeps people from coming to the table? I think this is very powerful. These are essential questions. And what I hear in myself and others unconsciously, unintentionally, is this default assumption that it's our table. And yeah, we need to make sure people have access to it. And we need to cast a wide net of invitation. But it's at the end of the day, it's our table. And I think there's a way to resist that with these proclamations. This is God's table and it doesn't fix the problem for us because we're still interpreting what that means. We are still laying out the table. And I would just love to hear you reflect on that struggle to be a host knowing that it's God's table. (laughs) The struggle is real. <laughs> the struggle is real. I mean, I think it, it connects back to your last question in terms of um, what does it mean to welcome? And and it's so, it feels, for me at least, it is a very fine, tricky line between um, holding the the depth of the the honor and the responsibility and the the work of saying, okay, I need to keep saying it. I need to keep making it true and not then taking ownership over it. Um, I don't have any like magic, like ways to do that. I mean, I think part of it is like what you said, it's, it's reminding ourselves. I think that one thing that's very powerful about a repetitive liturgy is that we have those, those words become embedded in us in a way that it actually forms the community. And so the fact that every week around that table, we were able to say, you know, this is God's table where all are welcome to feed and be fed. We were able to say, this is all you need to be to eat here is hungry. I mean, those are, those are words and they are words that, that give life and that form and that, that inform. And something that was really um, powerful for me is that, you know, after a while, the community starts saying them back to you. So when you are, are forming a community around a value such as it's God's table where all are welcome. And that is reinforced week after week. Then there's some community accountability that starts happening. And that if we, you know, if, if I didn't catch myself with the, the, Oh, it's our table or, Oh, you know, putting up some kind of fence, somebody else would. And I think that, um, that is a big piece of it, that it's not just the job of the clergy to, to hold these values as a community. It's something that we do communally. I encourage kind of, I don't even want to say traditional churches, but indoor churches. Let's say, let's call them indoor churches. One of the things that I encourage indoor churches to do, and of course COVID is a 
whole bunch of opportunities of, in terms of creativity is I don't think every church needs to be a garden church or an outdoor church. I don't think that's not like the answer to the like, you know, decay of the mainline church like that. That's not, I think we, we all need to do church in different ways. Um, but I do think there is something very powerful about taking our worship services into different contexts and that something happens if you're a church that primarily meets indoors in a sanctuary that you've met in that sanctuary in similar ways for many years, that something happens when you take it out to your parking lot or you take it out to a nearby park or you take it around a dinner table and that it helps us to shake it up and remember again, like, all right, this is not our table. This is not actually our sanctuary. This is not even our carpet, right? That this is all God's and that these physical things, these contextual clues help to remind us that this is of God and this is God's, but God is much bigger than any of these things. And God is, is generous and extends a welcome and a hospitality that is beyond what many of us can do, but also extends to us who, who claim to be part of the church, right? So that, that I am welcome at God's table. So, you know, a church that I am the pastor of, that I founded, that I literally physically put that cedar stump in the middle of that. I mean, mean, like who has more ownership over that table than I do, right? In human terms. And yet, oh, no, no, this is God's table and I am welcome there. And I am welcome there in my brokenness. I am welcome there in my hunger. I am welcome there to be transformed and changed. That's that's powerful, right? <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the ways, you know, I think getting in different contexts, but also asking ourselves the question of what part of ourself is welcome at God's table that maybe we aren't comfortable with or we don't think should be able to be there. So I think it's, I think it's big work. I think it's ongoing. I don't, um, I think it's important work because I think if, when we are not continually examining that, it's when we start putting up us's and them's and fences and, um, qualifiers and, and we forget what it's all about. It becomes about us human folk instead of acknowledging that there's this this big loving God who is actually the architect of it all. Anna, will you read for us again from the story of the manna? As Exodus 16 recounts, the children of Israel wandering in the desert and toting their tabernacle with them were exhausted and hungry. God heard them and said there would be bread from heaven. They woke up one morning and saw that, quote, when the layer of dew lifted, There on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. End quote. But they did not say, oh, look, God has provided for us. No, instead they said, manna? Which means, what is it? And then they named it manna, and they did not eat it, but instead continued to go hungry. So Moses pointed it out to them and said something like, people, this is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. They finally realized. They bent down, scooped it up, and took it to their tents to prepare and eat. When you were writing these words a couple of years ago, there was a deep and robust faith in scarcity in our country, in our culture. 
I feel that that faith in scarcity is even stronger today. And I would love to hear how you are looking around or experiencing this world and finding places where people believe in enough. You know, there's a lot of directions to go with this. I just finished listening to um, Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he has this quote near the end that is just kind of keeps living with me where he, and I won't get it exactly right. Um, but something like the, the underlying or the ultimate issue of racism is not, is, is not avoiding like bigotry and hate. Obviously we need to do those, but that's not, that's not at the core. The core is actually self-interest and that it is the self-interest of, I mean, white folks over generations that has perpetuated the systems of racism and they're shored up by our bigotry and our hate, but that the core is self-interest. And I just think about, and I think about like the climate crisis, right? Like what is kind of at the core of the climate crisis? Well, it's like, it's consumerism and it's self-interest and it's us wanting more and faster and drive all the places and have the factories. And it's, it's manufacturing (laughs) that is, has profit above like caring for the planet. I mean, like, and, and then I think about the pandemic and I think about, you know, I mean, early on we had all the like hoarding, (laughs) I know, and maybe we've cut back on that a little bit, but now we have this there's a scarcity of me being able to do what I want to do. There's a scarcity of me being able to have the life that I remember. There's a scarcity of, of ease. There's a scarcity. And, and these are all things like, I mean, I feel them like I want them. I, you know, it's not like I miss my cute little coffee shop that I used to go and (laughs) write sermons in, you know, it's not, I would love to see my family. I mean, it's not, you know, the, the, the needs, the desires are real. And yet I think that when we are living in scarcity, we start to make choices based on self-interest, not on the interest of the whole. Um, And so I think that the idea of enough, and as the Garden Church's blessing song says, enough, enough, and some to share, is actually kind of a, like, pinnacle, like, life or death of our (laughs) planet and culture kind of concept right now that if I actually can stop and look and see that, well, you know, we have a apartment that we are living in and we have jobs that we can pay that rent. And yes, my little office has turned into an office, a recording studio, a sanctuary, but hey, it's, it's done that. That's, it's enough. You know, would I rather be in a sanctuary having, you know, worship together with people in person, of course I would, but this is enough. And this is enough for this season. Um, you know, obviously we can get into this with, with all sorts of inequities and food insecurity. And, you know, I mean, just the amount of food that goes to waste in this country before it even gets to the grocery stores is, I think it's, it's sinful. It's, it's terrible. The, amount of people who are hungry because they don't have access, the, the, the 
financial gain for a few and um, the struggle for many. And so I don't really see an area of inequity that scarcity enough doesn't touch. I think that um, it it's core. And so I wonder as people of faith, as people who are striving to be followers of Christ, if this crux idea of, is it all about me or is it about the gathered body? Is it about the interconnected human and all of creation? Is it about something bigger than us? Is a core piece that I don't know that we, I think we have a lot of things to learn and to grow. And I think it's something that the brethren have something to offer the bigger church in terms of your deep belief in the priesthood of all believers, in the communal, in the, um, even the sharing of resources and the way that there is this, this reverence for, for community and for the interconnection. Um, and I think we need that in the world right now. We need examples of living, not for ourselves, but living for our communities. Um, there's a, um, so I learned this song long after the garden church from cathedral of the night, which is a um, street church here in Northampton and their blessing song is um, God bless to us, our bread and give food to those who are hungry, give hunger for justice to those who are fed. God bless to us, our bread. And I just think that it kind of goes back to your first question about the reciprocity um, that even as we are consuming food. So actually my husband and I have been using that for our blessing song all through the pandemic. It's kind of in our touch point to say like, here we are, we have enough. We're sitting here. Yes. We're by ourselves at our kitchen table. We love to have people over. We're missing that, but, but we're being fed. But what we cannot forget as we are isolated in our own little home is we need to continue to pray for that hunger for justice. And we need to continue to be, actively engaged in the work of justice and compassion in our communities and in our world. And that because we have enough, then what we are lacking is, or what, or what we need to continue to to seek after is that hunger to be part of creating a more just and generous world. During this pandemic, churches are faced with deciding what their priorities are. And even without consciously deciding, all of us are deciding what our priorities are because there are only so many things that we're continuing to do. And brethren don't have a lot of sacraments. In fact, we say we have none. We have ordinances, but that's a tangent. Um, <laughs> and so, so we haven't been fixated on like sharing the bread and cup, for example, but we would have tended to say that service is one of our highest priorities. But even for good intentioned people, it's confusing to know how to be of service right now when there are so many limitations on what we can and can't do in person. And so I just find us to be um, wandering around like sheep without a shepherd trying to figure out how to be church. And I'd love to hear what you're seeing in your own life, in the lives of people you know, about what they're finding is essential to being church. Yeah. You know, I do think it's different for different traditions in terms of what what is the marker point of this is what it means to be church. Um, but I think for any for all of our various traditions within the broader church, it's an opportunity to define that and to name it and to explore it. 
one of the things that I encourage churches to ask is to reflect together what does it mean to be church just to ask that question but then also and what of that you know what are we missing but also what are we able to focus on that maybe we weren't focused on before um and, you know, it's interesting, this idea of service and how do we do service? I mean, I feel like I'm just running up against it with a place. So I'm doing an interim pastorate with a Lutheran church right now, and they are very centered around service. I mean, it's part of their DNA and it's been very frustrating for them. And they also had, they've read on their sanctuary to be this big, beautiful, they call it common room. The farmer's market was there and the boys and girls club, like it was just this this really like of service kind of place. And when the physical, like when the physical place could no longer be of service for this season. And then also there were many ways of physically being of service that were not within, within the range of ability of the congregation that there's kind of this like, well, who are we, you know, like, how do we do? Um, And one of the things actually just preached on this, this last week they had their their yearly that ELC has like a yearly like day of service and what you know usually they would not have their Sunday morning worship and they'd be out in the community and and so I was wrestling with the Matthew 25 text and thinking about you know we so often focus on oh someone's hungry let's feed them oh someone's thirsty let's give them something to drink and I think that is very important um but I think an opportunity we have in this season is that time potentially and the the space to to research and to learn and to listen to ask why is that person hungry in the first place why doesn't that person have access to fresh water that person's in prison we should visit them oh we can't do that but should they even be in prison so many people are sick do they have the health care that they need and so i think that an invitation we have for those of us who are in congregations or individuals who are, who our faith is so centered around service is we have an invitation to not to ignore the direct service, but to dig deeper and to look at advocacy and organizing and doing some of our deeper work around these various justice issues, both in ourselves, but also learning, you know, what are the policies in our local communities and, why is the homeless shelter two miles from all the services that they have? And wait, the that grocery store closed and there's not a bus line near and starting to engage, or maybe not even starting, but upping our engagement with, with root causes of inequity and oppression and injustice. Um, and that that is something that is harder, I believe, in many ways than serving at a food pantry. And yet maybe that's the invitation of this time is um, obvious. I mean, in terms of racial justice, this is, there are, there are so many resources if you want to dive in, to, you know, to, to learn, like there, there are resources available for us to, and there are people who want to want to do this work. And so maybe the time that we, the other points have spent, in physically serving, we can spend in learning how to be organizers and advocates and, um, and make some deeper systemic change. Pastoring people is complex and tender. Writing about people is complex and tender. And in this book, you have been pastoring and writing about the same people. 
Tell us something that you learned in that process. I wrote the book after I was no longer their pastor. And so that was tricky too, because I got permission to contact the people to get their permission to um, have have their stories included. I think the, the biggest thing I learned is my pastor heart was so, so um, invested in each individual and their stories and and their names. I mean, I think that was something that was so important to me is that everyone, when they walked through the gate, they were greeted by name and, and seen as that individual, like beloved child of God. But quickly as a writer, I realized like my readers are going to be completely lost. And so there was a lot of like combining people and stories and, um, and taking away names. So there's, there are a lot of people in the book that if they only come into like one or two stories, they might have an identifying detail. They might, and that was hard for me. That was really hard for me and how to honor, honor the individuals and the stories and also honor the story as a whole. And, um, one of my first readers on one of the first drafts was just like, I got lost, like who's who, what's what. And that was, that was painful for me. It was like to, to have the, the work of the, the book mean that, and I couldn't tell all the stories, you know, there's so many other stories. <laughs> They're so good. And how do you pick? And, and sometimes it's not picking like your favorite, even it's picking like, what does the work that needs to happen in this chapter as far as the book goes. So, but I also think it helps me to pay attention to details. And I think this is a, this is whether you're writing or not as pastors, as people of faith to be paying attention to, to the details of people's lives and to the, to those little moments of, of grace and of the little moments where we, we can see God. My Easter sermon this year proclaimed that every garden begins with death. The garden church began with compost before they'd even rented a plot of land. This is true. Gardens begin with death, with compost, which is death and resurrection, to build soil for new life to come. As Mary meets the resurrected Christ as the gardener, I understand the Easter story to be a return to the paradise of the garden through death and resurrection, and that God blesses this divine design, not as a fix to some earlier curse. Death was never, is never a curse, but part of God's design. How do gardens teach you about death and resurrection? There's so much to love about the short time we got to spend with both of them. There were those moments where Anna talks about various traditions within the broader church and about what brethren can offer the bigger church. And I was just struck by how, yes, the two of them come from different faith traditions, And I mean, we all come from different traditions, right? No one else's journey is your journey. Yet the values that they share, that we share, really shine through. And so I'm grateful for Annalisa, who through this interview has built a bridge, has made a way for Anna's experiences and her wisdom to become part of our Dunker Punk tradition. One thing that really came through for me was just the raw honesty. When they're talking about scarcity, and about having to go without the familiar things that bring us comfort. And Anna says, yes, of course I want these things and I miss them. I feel like that framing is so important. One thing she says brethren have to offer 
is to be an example of living not for ourselves, but for community. But she's also showing us a way to be that example, which is not denying that we want the things we want or pretending like we have somehow risen above that, but admitting and embracing our own struggles and our flaws. It's okay for people to see us fall down because it means that they also get to see how we lift each other up. When she quotes the blessing song saying, give hunger for justice to those who are fed. I mean, I felt a really very real hunger pang in that moment. As soon as she said that, I know that sounds funny. And I think that, yes, part of it is that statement is sort of directed at me and folks like me, like I am someone who is fed. It's pretty much designed to give me that discomfort, which is sort of the point. I should want justice, always, but especially now. And what's more, I should want it in the same visceral, bodily way that I want food when I'm hungry. I should want it in a way that isn't comfortable, in a way that is urgent, that can't be ignored. And I think, on like a different level, I felt that pang because I was just hungry to hear those words out loud. I was like, yes, this is what we need to be hearing and what we need to be saying. If we want our words to lead to action, then we have to be able to say them in a way that shakes people out of complacency, that unsettles us when we have grown too comfortable. And lastly, I just really appreciated the discussion about what service can look like, how service is advocacy, service is organizing, service is addressing the root causes. I know for some folks, that's just sort of how they've been doing things all along. But many others are just starting to think about service in that way, just now becoming open to these ideas. And so I was glad when Anna called this moment an invitation, because even if you are someone who's already engaged in that kind of service, it's a good reminder to look around and recognize the moment when so many folks are looking to go beyond direct service. We need to welcome them into the work that's already taking place just as we ourselves have been welcomed at God's table. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember that Anna's book, This is God's Table, is available now from Herald Press. So if the interview left you hungry for more, I hope you'll pick up a copy. Thanks for listening. Dunkerbunks podcast is a spotlight for the voices of brethren, young and old, in a community where all voices are welcome. I'm your host, James Foster. Annalisa Gross contributed this episode's audio. Jacob Krauss edits the show and creates our music. Taylor Cole manages communication. Suzanne Lay manages production. Arlington Church of the Brethren hosts and sponsors the show. On Earth Peace provides ongoing outreach and production support. Find archives on iTunes and online at arlingtoncob.org slash dpp. Connect with the show on social media at DunkerPunksPod or by emailing at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Tune in next week when we get to hear from Annalisa again. She'll be starting a new series on behalf of the Women's Caucus by bringing back the leaders from her recent episodes for Messenger Radio. We'll hear voices from across the denomination, including Mary Scott Boria, Dana Cassell, Don Blackman, 
Chris Douglas, Eric Bishop, and Audrey Svey. I hope you can join us, and thanks. Thanks.